Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books in Intellectual History. I'm your host, Yorgos Yanakopoulos. Today, I'm very happy to be joined by Annelin Dedin. Annelin is a professor of political history at Utrecht University and the author of Freedom, an Unruly History, out with Harvard University Press. Annelin, uh, thanks for joining the program. Thank you much for having me. And I'd like to begin this by asking you to share with us what brought you to this particular project. Well, that's a a great question. So um, I'm European, I'm uh, Belgian more specifically, but a couple of years ago, I I, uh, lived in the US, I was doing a postdoc there, and this was around the time when Barack Obama had just been elected. Um, And so he and the Democrats were trying to introduce Obamacare uh, in the United States. But I don't know if you remember this, uh, but there was a huge outcry against that attempt uh, and in, uh, specifically against this idea that there should be an individual uh, mandate uh, related to uh, healthcare. Uh, and that whole uh, project was really um, attacked quite um, ferociously under the slogan of freedom. So the attempt to, you know, to expand healthcare to millions of Americans, millions of Americans was uh, depicted uh, by Republicans. Uh, and other opponents of this uh, project as a terrible attack on freedom. So, and uh, I find that really surprising uh, and and interesting. Um, And that got me wondering, uh, you know, where does this, uh, to me at least, uh, quite peculiar idea of freedom come from? So where does this idea that uh, any type of state intervention, even uh, state interventions that, you know, are demonstrably beneficial uh, for millions of people, Uh, that those constitute an attack on freedom. So that sort of got me going. Um, Then I got a little bit out of hand, and I ended up working for seven years uh, on this project, uh, which eventually uh, evolved into a history of freedom from uh, ancient Greece to the present. In the book, you marvelously bring together the American context and also the European context. So quite aptly, your experience as a European in America certainly shows in the book's narrative arc. Before we go into breaking down various bits of your narrative, I'd like to uh, focus on on what you claim to be your main intervention in the debate about freedom. Another way of asking this is, why do you think we need another book about freedom and its history? Uh, Yes, that's another great question to which I have a really uh, simple answer, and that is that currently we simply don't have uh, a history of freedom uh, in particular, a long-durée history of freedom. So obviously, there's a very rich historiography of freedom, but most historians who've worked on the subject uh, so far have focused on individual authors. Uh, I'm thinking here of Quentin Skinner's major book on Hobbes, or on uh, national traditions uh, like Eric Foner's book on uh, freedom in the American context. So the only attempt to write a long-term, uh, or the only fairly recent attempt to write a long-term history of freedom 
that I can think of is Orlando Patterson's uh, Freedom in the Making of Western History. Uh, and that uh, was supposed to go uh, like my book uh, ended up doing uh, from ancient Greece to the present. Uh, but Patterson, for some reason, uh, I don't know why, uh, gave up somewhere in the middle of his project. So he only published the first volume going up to the Middle Ages and the second volume to that uh, history never materialized. Now, once I realized that, um, I started thinking that this is in a way um, really uh, bizarre and unfortunate uh, because freedom is really one of the key political concepts in contemporary political debate. Uh, but it means uh, very different things to different uh, people. And those, you know, those different meanings uh, have a very different history. So that's what I uh, aim to explain in my book. Uh, perhaps this is also a good moment to clarify that my book really focuses on the history of freedom as a political concept. Uh, I examine changing answers to the question, what does it mean to be free uh, in a society or as a society? And obviously, there's um, other questions you may want to ask if you're interested in freedom. Um, for instance, there's a, a long debate on the history of freedom as an antonym of, of slavery, so called freedom as a legal category. Um, and then you might also be interested in what I would call moral freedom. So uh, changing answers to the question, what does it mean to be free? Is it even possible to call human beings free? Or are we determined by sort of uh, external forces, uh, such as, for instance, God or, or, bi or biological natures? So those, um, those are sort of questions I don't address in my book. My book really focuses on the history of freedom as a political concept. If you are an intellectual historian and you're providing a very rich picture of thinkers operating across time and space. Thinkers that, as you mentioned, belong to the so-called Western tradition of political thought. I was wondering whether you have any thoughts about thinking about freedom in non-Western forms of political thought, or if that matters at all for the reconstruction that you're making in the book. Yes, indeed. Um, this book is, my book is about the place of freedom in Western political thought. But I do not in any way want to suggest that, that other cultures don't have this, this history of thinking about freedom. To give you just one you know, tiny example that I myself find quite fascinating, the Waho, uh, they were an Indonesian uh, seafaring uh, people. In, in their culture, um, it appears freedom, uh, anthropologists have discovered, uh, freedom had just as much of a role as it does in uh, so-called uh, Western political thought. In uh, chronicles that uh, we have uh, from that from the Waho, uh, 18th century chronicles, uh, they talk about how, how important it is to be free, um, how important it is that they are free. And they also are quite explicit about what being free means, uh, a.k.a. that it means being able to more or less uh, do as you want and not be controlled by uh, outside forces. Um, uh, and, and that is very fairly similar, I'd say, to uh, that earlier democratic tradition of freedom that I talk about in my book. Then why did I end up uh, talking mostly about uh, Western political thought? Well, that has to do with reasons of my own expertise, but also because um, as a European, uh, I live in what we call the West, and that's where I see uh, this conception of freedom being used in uh, contemporary political debate in ways that I myself find uh, quite problematic. Now, um, I'd also like to clarify what I mean by uh, the West. I don't want to suggest that there is something like a Western political tradition uh, that we should think of um, as being set in stone or or as a natural phenomenon or so, like like a continent or, or, or the sun for that matter. The way that I myself look at this 
is as a contingent tradition. The reason that Europeans and uh, to a certain extent Americans uh, tend to think of, for instance, the Greeks and the Romans as as being, you know, our forebears in this Western political tradition. The reason that 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 happened is quite complicated, but in in many ways that is this is you know purely contingent. It it could not have happened at all. Uh, and at the same time, um, I'd also uh, argue, and that is also something that I very much try to show in my book, the nature of this Western tradition is deeply contested. But I'd argue that that doesn't make it less real for us today. That's another reason why I wanted to write this, this book, or why I think it's important that professional historians write these kind of big uh, narratives, uh, because it's important that we that we attempt to challenge the stories that we tell ourselves uh, about, you know, what the West is and what Western political thought is, because those stories tend to be quite triumphalist uh, and often uh, deeply inaccurate. So it's, I think it's important that uh, we as professional historians try to sort of provide a, a counterpoint to those textbook triumphalist uh, narratives. And don't throw away uh, even the idea of having a narrative simply because a lot of narratives, grand narratives of that sort were molded in a period where where the West had a different connotation. Exactly. Again, if uh, if we professional historians don't attempt to write those kinds of narratives, uh, then, you know, we'll end up forcing people to turn <laughs> to those 19th century narratives. And I really don't think that that would be a good thing. Mm. Thinking of freedom as a political concept, one uh, major, one of your key claims in the book is that we need to understand the coming together of the concept of democracy and freedom. Exactly. What has been missing in the way historians, intellectual historians have been thinking about the relation between democracy and freedom? I was really intrigued by this, you know, where does this idea that freedom requires the absence of state intervention, where does that, that idea come from? And one of the key arguments I ended up developing in the book is that that particular way of thinking about freedom is far more recent than you th think. And that really becomes clear if you look at the long history of freedom. So freedom starting, uh, you know, uh, in ancient Greece. Because if you look at the history of freedom from that long-term perspective, uh, what becomes clear is that for centuries, people tended to think about freedom in a very different way. For centuries, freedom didn't necessarily mean, you know, a minimal state, but what it meant was the ability to exercise control over the way you're governed. So for centuries, freedom was almost synonymous with democracy. And what my, my book then shows is that the switch to this current way of thinking about freedom, freedom as the absence of the state, that that is the result not of um, long-term intellectual developments like um, the Reformation and the rise of religious tolerance or the rise of market societies, but that instead it was the result of a dramatic rupture uh, with that democratic conception of freedom, a, a rupture triggered by a conservative backlash against uh, the Atlantic revolutions. To quote a poignant uh, passage from the book, you claim that the concept of freedom was gradually transformed from being a weapon to fight for democracy into an instrument that could be used to battle against democracy. Exactly. So what I ended up discovering was that, okay, for centuries, people, when they were fighting for freedom, what they meant by that was they were fighting for greater control, democratic control over their governments. But what then happens at a moment in time when movements start to gain its 
first successes in the real world, so the Atlantic revolutions, which roiled the Atlantic world at the uh, end of the 18th century. At that exact moment, uh, a backlash emerges. Conservatives start arguing, no, actually, if you want to be free, uh, democratizing your political system won't really help uh, because what freedom really means is just, it's not about controlling your government. It's about, you know, privately enjoying your goods, your individual goods, uh, your, your, your life, your property. And um, they start making that claim as, as a way to counter this uh, claim um, for greater uh, democratic control over government. What ends up happening is that this concept of freedom, which used to be uh, employed to fight for democracy, from that moment in time starts to be used as a weapon to fight against democracy. Because if freedom really means being left alone by the state, then you don't really need democracy in order to be free, right? On the contrary, and that's an argument conservatives will use over and over again, democracy might pose a threat to freedom. Democratic government, um, which has the potential um, for redistribution, might end up harming individual rights and notably the right to property. So you see that that argument starts being used. Freedom is really about you know minimal government, that that starts to be used uh, to, to explain why we need less democracy if we want to be more free. Let's stay a bit in the period of the Atlantic Revolutions and maybe break it up for our audience who might not be necessarily familiar with these kinds of terms we historians use. So I'd like you to share with us some of your discoveries with regards to thinkers and the way they understand the relationship between democracy and revolution in turbulent times, in times where political order is, uh, is really waning. The Atlantic Revolutions, which uh, obviously started um, in uh, North America, immediately, almost immediately, it triggered this huge backlash. What you see is that you could describe as a, a transatlantic intellectual movement uh, takes shape of thinkers who start, you know, sort of try to counter this democratic movement and start arguing why democracy is really uh, a bad thing. What you see is that they start uh, explicitly redefining this concept of freedom in order to be able to explain why democracy uh, is a bad thing. And uh, one of the most notable thinkers involved in this movement is Edmund Burke. So Burke is somebody who starts uh, saying in response to the French Revolution, um, look, you know, democracy is a really bad idea. And uh, not, most notably, uh, it poses a major threat to freedom. Uh, in particular, it's sort of the Jacobin version. If we really want to remain free, what we should do is uh, be happy with the system we have in place in Britain, um, quite oligarchic system, um, where less than 5% of the adult population was able to vote for the House of Commons. Um, and uh, huge political power was also exercised to quite an extensive degree by an unelected hereditary House of Lords. But in, in Burke's view, that system is, you know, the embodiment of liberty is almost the perfect sort of way of institutionalizing freedom, precisely because it isn't democratic. And what you see is that this argument is invented um, by these counter-revolutionary thinkers like Edmund Burke, but then it almost immediately uh, comes to be picked up by a different movement, uh, a movement that, that, that isn't counter-revolutionary, so that accepts some of the gains, uh, in particular of the French Revolution, such as, for instance, the separation between church and state, but uh, a movement that is nevertheless also very skeptical of democracy. And that movement is a liberal movement. So... Um, there's lots of ways of uh, defining what liberalism is, but in my view, one of the sort of um, easiest ways uh, identifying what liberalism is, historically speaking, is to simply look at people who self-identified as liberals. And um, 
people only started self-identifying as liberals in a political sense in the early 19th century, um, uh, most notably in France. So that's where, you know, sort of the early uh, liberal movement takes shape. And those early liberals, and I'm thinking here of um, thinkers such as Benjamin Constant, they in some ways thought of themselves as the heirs of the French Revolution, right? Uh, as I just mentioned, uh, one of the revolutionary achievements that they tended to embrace was the separation between church and state. But what makes them very different from uh, the French uh, and also American revolutionaries is that they were extremely uh, skeptical of democracy. And that is um, sort of a, a legacy of the, of the terror, obviously. Uh, and a result um, of that uh, s- skepticism is that uh, liberals in the, throughout the 19th century, in particular in the first half of the 19th century, uh, European liberals tended to embrace and propagate political systems that we would uh, describe as oligarchic. Liberalism, because of its fear of democracy, a fear instilled by the French, by the, by the derailment of the French Revolution into the terror, becomes an anti-democratic movement. And uh, that, that sort of encourages liberals to adopt this counter-revolutionary claim that the best way to protect freedom is to curb democracy. Benjamin Constant here uh, is, is a great example. So uh, one of his most famous essays on liberty uh, where he uh, develops this idea that modern liberty is about uh, private enjoyment um, and, um, and, and the protection of individual rights. And uh, where you know, he sort of um, uh, rejects this idea that the revolutionary definition of freedom, the identification of freedom with, uh, with self-government, that that is something worthwhile. At the same time, though, as, as you mentioned in the book, there are ways of uh, liberal thinking that are closer to democracy. An example that you write in the book is John Stuart Mill and his own understanding of democracy and, and freedom. So my question here is, how can we understand the differences between liberal thinking and the tensions between democracy and individual rights? Well, that's a great question. So what you see happening in the second half of the 19th century um, is that uh, liberals in many European countries, um, and most notably in France uh, and to a lesser extent also in the UK, slowly start accepting that the rise of democracy is in fact inevitable. And you see that they start toning down uh, their anti-democratic rhetoric and that they start, to a certain extent, they start accepting uh, democracy as a legitimate form of government. But what remains uh, similar to the uh, sort of earlier part of the 19th century um, is that these same liberals continue to argue that even though democracy uh, might be an acceptable form of government, it is not liberty. So if you want to protect liberty and if you're a liberal, then you should always privilege uh, freedom, the protection of these individual rights over and above uh, democracy and democratic majoritarianism. And the interesting thing is that you... You even see that idea cropping up in the writings of somebody like John Stuart Mill. So uh, Mill is, a, I think, extremely interesting uh, thinker. Um, well, obviously, I'm not the only person who thinks that. Um, um, who has a, a background in a different intellectual tradition, which is radicalism, right? He was a godson of Jeremy Bentham. And one of the things that is uh, Jeremy Bentham was notable for was that he was in the UK, one of the earliest proponents of manhood suffrage. Mill, in a, in a way, is even more radical than this heritage um, because he also embraces um, uh, the, ra- the right to suffrage for women. What I, what I try to show in my book is that this, this is really very much under the influence of French uh, liberal thinkers. At the same time, you see that Mills also uh, 
comes to really insist on this idea that freedom isn't democracy and that protecting freedom doesn't necessarily mean uh, that you need to expand democracy. On the contrary, somebody like Mill harps on this uh, uh, idea that, uh, uh, that, that, you know, what we should be really worried about is a tyranny of the majority. And of course, uh, on the face of it, that is a legitimate worry. Um, so, you know, I would be the last person to deny that, you know, the tyranny of the majority is something we should be worried about. But what I find interesting is that Mill is um, sort of harping on this idea in intellectual context where the overwhelming majority of the uh, British population did not have a vote. So um, he's insisting that we should be worrying about majoritarian tyranny at the very same time. Uh, when, you know, the fight for democracy um, was still very much ongoing in the British context. And I find, the, in, in that sense, I find the contrast with his uh, godfather, Bentham, uh, quite intriguing, right? Bentham was worried about the, um, you know, what he was worried about was what he called sinister interests, um, the oligarchic control of the of British elites over British political life. That's what Bentham was most worried about in the later period of his life. And I would say that if you look at the context in which those two uh, thinkers were living, <laughs> you know, it's, I'd say that Bentham had more reason uh, to say that we should be worrying about the influence of sinister interests uh, than uh, somebody like Mill uh, had for saying that we should be worrying about the tyranny of the majority. And that brings me to a larger point, And that is that one of the things that I try to show in my book is that this uh, fear for majoritarian tyranny which again, um, on the face of it, isn't, you know, that, that's not a crazy, you know, thing to worry about. It's a legitimate worry that we have. But if you look at the history of freedom, what you see is that this idea starts uh, to be mobilized, instrumentalized uh, by a series of conservative uh, movements, counter-revolutionary movements, anti-democratic movements in order to fight against democracy. So what I find interesting is that you have this you know, abstract discussion about, um, you know, democratic theory and the danger of majoritarianism. But what we, I think what we should be paying more attention to is uh, how this idea was mobilized in time to fight for, um, you know, the interests of elites rather than for the interests of uh, vulnerable minorities. This creates a, a heritage and a tradition that influences even the most radical of liberals, in, at least in the British context, uh, John Stuart Mill, right? Yes, exactly. I'd say that this is something that you still see, you know, influencing liberals to this very day. Moving on towards the end of the latter part of the 19th century and on towards the 20th century, in the book, you talk about the rise of collectivism and collectivist thought. And you have something to say about how this influenced the evolution, the ever-evolving understanding of liberalism as an ideology and the relation to democracy. What is it that you find interesting as we move on towards the 20th century in the way this counter-revolutionary tradition is being influencing different strata of thought? You, you have the emergence of this counter-revolutionary conservative way of thinking about freedom. Freedom is not democracy. It's just, you know, having your individual rights protected and democracy potentially poses a threat to this. Hence, protecting freedom means curbing democracy. So that idea starts, um, you know, that emerges in this counter-revolutionary context and then uh, comes to be picked up by by liberal thinkers in the course of the 19th century. So that idea uh, get, gets huge airplay, so to speak, uh, in the course of the 19th century. Um, 
in particular, as uh, in a European context, at least, um, various attempts to further democracy or to democratize uh, through revolution, uh, such as the revolutionary wave of the 1840s. Um, so what you see is that that idea, you know, gains energy that that counter-revolutionary conception of freedom that that you know gets new energy from every other failure uh, of revolutionary attempts to introduce democracy in Europe. That that just really stimulates this idea that freedom is potentially threatened by democracy. But then by the end of the 19th century, uh, that fear is even further amplified by a second new development, and that is the early, very early attempts uh, to use the state to redistribute wealth uh, from the very rich to the poor and to uh, create something uh, that starts to look like a welfare state. Again, uh, really uh, leads to a, a new uh, resurgence of this idea that uh, freedom is really threatened by by democracy. Um, and what you then see is that somebody, uh, a thinker like Herbert Spencer, uh, starts you know producing lots of uh, books and articles, arguing uh, that socialism is slavery. But what he really means isn't Marxist socialism, of course. What he really means, what he feels threatened by, are attempts you know, to our mind, at least, uh, are fairly obviously necessary. Regulate, you know, attempts to regulate conditions, working conditions, to prohibit child labor, etc. So to Spencer, all of that is socialism, uh, and all of that is, um, you know, a major threat to freedom. In addition to sort of the emergence of democracy. Uh, itself, uh, revolutionary attempts to introduce democracy. The, by the end of the 19th century, this conservative fear of democracy, a fear that is articulated in the language of liberty, gets new oxygen uh, from the rise of, uh, of socialism and of early attempts to, um, to use state power in the interests of poor people. Another key moment that you trace towards the end of the book, obviously, concerns uh, the Cold War moment and the redefinitions of liberty and democracy there. And I guess this is a moment much closer to the present. So I'm wondering if we were to turn to that particular period in time, you, you refer to thinkers like Berlin and Hayek and others. What would be the key pointers in the way that this distancing between democracy and uh, liberty takes place? As I mentioned earlier, what I'm what I'm trying to figure out in this book is how did this idea that freedom is uh, threatened by state intervention and that a free state is therefore a minimal state, how did that idea uh, manage to get the sort of uh, enormous hold on uh, political debate that it has today? One big explanation is uh, that counter-revolutionary backlash against democracy in the first place and socialism in the second place that then leads to attempts to redefine freedom as something that is uh, very different from democracy and potentially under threat from democracy. But there's also a, a second storyline uh, here, and that is the storyline of how uh, the left then gave up on the concept of freedom. And that doesn't happen right away. Um, so initially, uh, when um, counter-revolutionaries uh, and uh, classical liberals um, start redefining freedom in order to argue, you know, we don't need democracy in order to be free. All you need to be free, you know, is a state that leaves you alone. That argument is um, continues to be disputed by, by left-wing political movements. In the first place, by movements that continue to fight for greater democracy, uh, such as um, um, you know, the radical Republican movement, 
uh, in various uh, European countries, uh, or the feminist movement in Britain and in the United States, um, as well as uh, the abolitionist movement and the movement uh, for civil rights. So obviously none of these movements uh, agree with this um, counter-revolutionary idea that being free just means being left alone by the state, right? They, they continue this revolutionary tradition that freedom is about democracy. But what you then see happening at the same time um, is that by the end of the 19th century, uh, a number of new movements emerge. Um, some of these movements call themselves socialist, but others uh, prefer you know, other denominations. Um, in France, for instance, you have a really interesting uh, political party that calls itself the, um, the, the radical socialists. Uh, and um, you know, so they, they place themselves deliberately in that radical tradition rather than the you know, Marxist socialist tradition. Um, uh, as well as uh, the, the sort of new liberalism of the um, late 19th century in, in Britain, for instance. And what you see is that uh, those movements start also start placing themselves in that revolutionary tradition. Uh, but what their sort of argument is that we shouldn't just try to expand, uh, we shouldn't just try to gain greater control over our political lives if we want to be free. We also need to gain greater control over our economic lives. Um, so there's this really great quote uh, by Jean Jaurès, the uh, French socialist leader uh, who writes a famous uh, history of the French Revolution, um, where he writes something along the lines of, well, uh, the French Revolution, the goal of the French Revolution was to liberate us by introducing political democracy. The goal of socialism is to complete that revolution by also expanding democracy to the economic sphere. So um, the, the left, um, you know, up until the 1950s, I would argue, uh, presents itself as the, the heirs of that uh, revolutionary, democratic, you know, freedom-centric tradition. But then um, with the emergence of the Cold War, uh, so in the 1950s, then something, something happens that sort of um, puts an end to that embrace of, of freedom by this uh, by by these left-wing movements and the way I explain what happens in the book is that in the wake of the Cold War uh, the left um, also ends up embracing the same the concept of freedom uh, that is uh, that was invented by these counter-revolutionaries um, and that has become associated associated with um, uh, with uh, individuals uh, right? Uh, classical liberals like Herbert Spencer, laissez-faire liberalism. And I think the best example um, of a thinker where we see that happening is Isaiah Berlin. So as we all know, uh, Isaiah Berlin, um, one of the sort of great uh, theorists of freedom of the 20th century, was was not um, a neoliberal, right? He was not a classical liberal. He was not a laissez-faire liberal. Uh, on the contrary, we know that he voted labor um, uh, at least uh, a couple of times. And we also know um, that he was in favor of, uh, of, uh, of Roosevelt's New Deal. But at the same time, uh, Berlin is adamant that we sh should, so he, he thinks we should be using uh, state power. There's nothing wrong with that. So what, what you see is that in the case of somebody like Isaiah Berlin, is that even though he, he, you know, it, he embraces the idea that the state should provide greater economic security to ordinary individuals, he's adamant that we shouldn't describe that in terms of liberty. So uh, he embraces this uh, conception of freedom um, as an absence of state interfer intervention. 
Having read the book, I think one also is left with the impression that, you know, these kinds of conceptualizations that you just mentioned um, are winning the debate today. So uh, if the left has given up on the concept of freedom, uh, how can we regain this uh, very rich relation that over the years, over the centuries, and given the influence of the counter-revolutionary tradition has waned? Uh, do you see in contemporary political theory any attempts to fruitfully reconceptualize and bring back democracy into understandings of freedom? Yes. Um, well, I, I think there's two interesting developments um, to point out in this regard. One development is uh, the sort of embrace of it, or the emergence um, in in political theory um, of a, a new you know, a new kind of political theory, uh, namely neo-republicanism. So uh, today, contemporary political philosophers uh, like Philip Pettit, for instance, um, he's a prominent uh, philosopher today who makes these kinds of arguments, uh, have started arguing and they're drawing on the work of intellectual historians uh, like Quentin Skinner, uh, whose work I myself uh, also uh, have drawn on quite extensively, to sort of um, argue that we should be we should be reaching back to this older conception of freedom, this more, what I call more democratic conception of freedom, although Pettit, uh, for various reasons, prefers to call it a Republican conception of freedom. Um, so you really see, in, in, I think in, in political philosophy, you really see that there's uh, an attempt to rethink current notions of freedom and to sort of uh, break through this by now um, increasingly uh, unsatisfactory dichotomy uh, that Berlin introduced into political theory between negative freedom as freedom in the absence of state interference on the one hand and positive freedom. Uh, no, you know, state intervention uh, does enhance your freedom if certain conditions are fulfilled by reminding us that it's not, you know, the question is not whether the state can or cannot enhance our freedom. The question is what kind of state makes us, allows us to live as free people? So in political theory, I think, you know, you really see an attempt to rekindle these older, older conception of freedom. And that is something that I also hope to contribute to with my own book. But then another development that I find equally interesting is that you see that left-leaning uh, politicians, in particular in the US, uh, and I'm thinking of somebody like Bernie Sanders here, are also increasingly starting to make the case that the state, if it is a democratic state, can be used to enhance people's freedom uh, instead of, uh, you know, always acting as as an infringement uh, of our liberty. Uh, and that is uh, another reason why, why I felt it was necessary to write this book right now, to provide a sort of a back history uh, to those attempts and to show that um, Sanders is actually right. Uh, there is a long, rich tradition um, of left-leaning thinking about freedom, you know, of, of left, left-wing politicians, socialist politicians identifying themselves as the you know heirs of freedom of freedom centric traditions uh, like the Atlantic Revolutionary tradition. Annelin, thank you very much for this discussion. Thank you so much. It was it was a pleasure to be here. <laughs>